This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Welcome to a turn on the Jets digital special presentation. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And I am joined for a very special show on, oh yeah, Macho Man Phil Savage, brother. Well, he's not Macho Man, but I'm going to call him that because his last name is Savage. He was in the Baltimore Ravens organization for many, many years, and we heard all about his time there from Michael Telford of Russell Street Report. But now I wanted to hear a little bit about Phil Savage, the general manager, and those years occurred in Cleveland. So I wanted to bring in one of the best writers when it comes to Cleveland Browns material. He's a good friend of our buddy Jeff Lloyd over at Locked On Browns, and he's one of the best out there writing for Orange and Brown Report, Mr. Jared Mueller. Jared, thanks for coming on to talk about Phil Savage with me, buddy. Hey, not a problem, Scott. It's uh, it's going to be a fun uh, look down memory lane of all the years gone by for the Browns. You say that with a hint of irony, the same way that I would say that with the Jets, where it's like, oh, yeah, fun trip down memory lane. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, sometimes we've had so many changes in Cleveland, it's sometimes they, they start to cross over in your head. You have to remember which guy that got fired for this stupid reason and made this dumb trade and brought in this wrong quarterback, and there was a change above him, below him, that led to him getting ousted. You know, sometimes those, you feel like the guy from... It's always sunny in Philadelphia with the lines all over the place. <laughs> I always appreciate a good It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia reference. One of my favorite shows of the last decade or so. And I think that the Cleveland Browns and the Jets both have a little bit of a tinge of It's Always Sunny humor to them. Unintentionally, of course. So let's talk about Phil Savage's time with the aforementioned Cleveland Browns. He started off as an assistant coach under Bill Belichick and then was moved into the front office. Kind of a weird move, right? It is, but it's so interesting. Um, and there's been stories and, and documentaries written about that early Browns group. Because in that group, you had Belichick and you had Savage. You had Nick Saban. You had um, Jim Bates. Uh, I think Ferentz was in that group. Uh, Scott Pioli. There was, a, I mean, just Eric Mangini. There were so many people that were involved in that early uh, '90s kind of Cleveland Browns under Belichick. That um, that tree is a really, really interesting tree. And so Savage started off coaching, and I don't know what Belichick saw in him to let him kind of move over into the scouting department. Um, but then, you know, he was only there for a few years uh, before uh, that the team left. Um, became the rat birds of Baltimore. And then um, from there, he got a lot of credit for what Ozzie Newsom did. That's for sure. You say that, I assume, based on what happened when he came back to the Browns, because when he came back to the Browns, he came back as the general manager and he was hired on January 6th, 2005. So let's talk about his return. What were the thoughts surrounding the Browns and Phil Savage when this hire was made? Really, the thoughts were that this is a guy who was directing college scouting for the Ravens, and the Ravens brought in a lot of really good players during that time. You know, Ed Reed and Terrell Suggs and Peter Bulware and, you know, just Ray Lewis, Jonathan Ogden was their first draft. So the thought was Savage understands building from the ground up. Uh, Baltimore was never this big free agent destina destination. Uh, they weren't, you know, huge trades, those kind of things. They really built their team kind of from the ground up. Uh, coming off of what came out of Cleveland, which wasn't a terrible team to begin with. And so the thought really was Savage really worked his way up, understood how to build a team through the draft, and really had proven kind of who he was and 
there was this nice, he has ties to Cleveland, has ties to Belichick, who, um, even though he ran Bernie out of town, there's he was talented. So the thought was, he knows what he's doing. We need a name, someone that's going to get respect, and someone that just knows how to build a team. And so they, you know, they bring him on, um, thinking he's going to restart this whole process for the Browns. And unfortunately, like most of everybody, until maybe John Dorsey, uh, just didn't happen. Let's unpack that because Michael Telford from Russell Street Report said that when Phil Savage was in Baltimore, he was known for having an eye for talent as a director of college scouting, like you said, but he was also known for having some personality conflicts and maybe not being the easiest guy to get along with. And we saw that pretty early on because he got himself involved in a power struggle within a year of starting in that job, right? Yeah, we thought that uh, there was a possibility that Savage wasn't going to make it through his first year. And it wasn't because of anything that he did in the draft or um, any free agent moves, anything like that. It was literally, there was just talk, and we find out later that it was pretty real talk that uh, him and the team president, John Collins, there was something there that just wasn't kind of vibing. And, and Savage's personality, his leadership, his ability to control his emotions and, and speak clearly and all of that just weren't there, um, especially early in, in that. And he won. He won that rift um, because instead it was it was the team president who resigned and Savage stayed on. So he, he really brought in a lot of power. Uh, very, very quickly. It sounds familiar to Jets fans because Adam Gase, in a different role, kind of won a similar battle quicker. So it's impressive that Gase was able to to win a power struggle before a season even started. Um, but Savage, his personality quirks, uh, his he kind of grates on people, or he grated on people. I won't say that I know a lot about him since he left the Browns, uh, but with the Browns, he really grated on people with his personality level of arrogance, level of belief in what he was doing um, was beyond what people are used to in that position. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Would you say that Savage was a bit immature when it came to his personality in terms of being able to lead the football operation of an NFL team? 
I would. When you look at uh, the leader of a team, of a, you know, that GM kind of vice president role, you have to really be able to be do good at one of two things at least, and that's either really leading and setting vision and communicating and getting everybody together, or talent evaluation. You have to have one or the other. Obviously, the hope is that you have both, but you have to be really good at one or the other and allow maybe somebody else to kind of take that one that you're not good at. And Savage's leadership and ability to lead just didn't work, which is really interesting because you can rarely find someone who doesn't love Ozzie Newsom. And Savage worked under with and under Ozzie Newsom for over a decade. And yet his personality had very little that resembled what Newsom did to really lead uh, the Ravens in the direction they went, as well as his ability to evaluate talent. We'll come back to his personality later because it would get him in trouble toward the end of his tenure with the Browns. But first, I want to know more about how he went about trying to build the team because you said that when they hired him, the understanding was, here's a guy that seems to know what it takes to build a successful football team. What did that entail when he took over with the Browns? You know, I think it's really interesting when you look at his decisions. It almost, um, outside of one very specific pick, and that's Joe Thomas, who is maybe the second greatest Brown of all time behind Jim Brown. He almost seemed to believe that his coaching staff could develop and could overcome a lot of things. So his first pick was the number three overall pick, which was Braylon Edwards, wide receiver out of that team up north, um, a player <laughs> who had a ton of drop issues, ton of focus issues in college. Um, but his belief was, that the coaching staff and the people around could could make that all work. And so he bet on kind of that talent over the ability of a player in a draft where, if we're honest and looking at it, the number six pick, Pac-Man Jones, may have been a better selection or would have been a better selection. DeMarcus Ware at 11 would have been a better selection. But famously, that's the Aaron Rodgers draft. And so in Cleveland, who has been searching for a quarterback since Bernie Kosar and Vinny Testaverde, there was a lot of talk that the Niners would pick uh, Aaron Rodgers at number one. They took Alex Smith. And so that would have left Rodgers there for the Browns at three. And instead they went with kind of the, the hype, the excitement of this big, fast, strong wide receiver who checked a lot of boxes. But unfortunately, ability to play uh, the position of wide receiver as opposed to having all of these physical attributes just wasn't there. And so I think that first draft pick really set him up kind of to be to fail. Um, and then you go into the next year and um, probably a huge sign of what I would consider arrogance is his next year, he made a trade with the Ravens. So the Ravens could move up one pick and all that he got in return was the 181st pick. Yeah, he traded so that the Ravens could draft Haloti Nada, and the Browns could get Cameron Wimbley, who had an okay career, and I'm not even going to pronounce his name well, but they got Cameron Wimbley and Baba Tunda Ashonwa, Um, and so it shows a lot about who Phil Savage thought he was, that the team he was working with a couple years prior is really wants to move up, really wants Haloti Nada, and Savage, belief in his own scouting and his team and his coaches, said, sure, give us the 181st pick so that you, a division rival, can get the player you really want. It just, it screamed arrogance. Like, I don't care if they would have picked Cameron Wimbley at 12 and let Haloti Nada slip to 13. 
that would have been one decision. But to trade to allow your division rival and a team you worked for for years to get that player, at some point that should have given him pause. Maybe I'm not thinking about this right. But when he thinks of something, he just goes all out into it. And so instead of Haloti Nada retiring as a Brown on the top of whatever mountain he was on, he does. He retired a Raven. Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hooping with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to Hooping with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. The Browns could have had Haloti Nada. They didn't draft him. The Browns could have had Aaron Rodgers. They didn't draft him either. But they did draft and, in fact, move up for Brady Quinn. I guess there's a little bit more of that arrogance you were talking about. A little bit. Now, that one actually surprised many people because they thought that Savage would even go a little bit more arrogant and more... Uh, singularly focused and actually take Brady Quinn at number three overall where they actually selected Joe Thomas. Most of us were scared that he would have seen the upside of Jamarcus Russell and selected him at three if he was available. Thankfully, the Raiders took that blow for us. But instead, he gets Joe Thomas a great pick at number three. Obviously, he could have had Adrian Peterson. Who knows how he would have been behind a terrible offensive line. And then again, he goes for a player in Brady Quinn who muscles, handsome, tall, Notre Dame. It's just basically the quarterback version of Braylon Edwards. Just didn't know how to play the position of quarterback. Was literally too muscular to actually play quarterback well. And so it just didn't work out. Um, I mean, again, he made the pick of Joe Thomas. That is something that we will always be thankful for. But there are just so many moves that you wonder why somehow they decided to give him a three-year extension and in 2012. It makes – or through 2012, sorry. Uh, it made almost literally no sense except for the fact that, well, Joe Thomas looks like he's going to be really good and Brady Quinn looks like someone that should play quarterback in a movie. I want to get back to what you were just talking about with the contract extension because that is very interesting and it would play into the suspicious circumstances surrounding him getting let go later on. But I will say one thing that I've heard a lot about with Joe Douglas, the new Jets general manager, is that he's excellent at finding guys in the mid and even late rounds that are able to make a roster and be impactful. And you heard that even about Champ Kelly, who's in the front office for the Chicago Bears. But Savage's record here with the Browns in his drafts, not good. Joe Thomas was an excellent pick, but he was picked third overall, and this was a complaint by a lot of Jets fans about Mike McCagnan, that when he had a pick in the top six, he generally did pretty well. But anything beyond that, in the mid and late rounds, he struggled a lot. And when you take a look at the drafts that went on under Phil Savage, seems like there was a lot of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were players. Dequel Jackson was a second-round pick. Uh, along with Cameron Wimbley. But here's the thing. The quote Jackson wasn't an impact player. And so I think that's really what you end up is he swung, he swung for the fences all the time, but there were just so many misses that Lawrence Vickers, who was a fullback and Jerome Harrison, who had these really great four games under Eric Mangini, like, 
those are the players that you get excited about when you look through um, who he who he drafted, and then you almost think he may have learned that he didn't know how to draft because by the time we got to the 2008 draft, both from the Brady Quinn trade and then making trades for Sean Rogers and Corey Williams, two, two defensive linemen, his first pick was the 104th pick uh, in, in the fourth round. So maybe he decided I wasn't very good at this whole drafting thing. So let me trade them away for players who at least already have proven something in the NFL, uh, as well as obviously getting Brady Quinn uh, because then his last draft Bo Bell is the most famous first draft pick for any team because you've asked Browns fans, who did the Browns draft in 2008? Who was their first pick? It's Bo Bell who did nothing in the NFL and was a fourth-round pick. Can you imagine a team in 2019 that their first pick in the draft was in the fourth round? They would be slaughtered for those decisions. It's funny you brought that up because that's something that former Jets general manager Mike Tannenbaum used to do a lot of. He would trade draft picks for known commodities, and eventually the bill came due and he wasn't able to pay it. And that was a philosophy that got him into a lot of trouble, and it sounds like it got Savage into a lot of trouble dealing these draft picks that he was going to need to really rebuild the team because we both know, Jared, that draft picks are the lifeblood of any NFL franchise, and he was more or less giving away a lot of very important ones. Yeah, so by 2009, um, after Savage was gone, of the 30 players he drafted, only 13 were still on the team. (laughs) So if you remember that he was hired the start of the 2005 season, by 2009, of the 30 dudes he he drafted, 13 were still on the team. And very quickly after that, most of those were gone as well, besides Joe Thomas. So, um, you know, he just didn't. He didn't make wise decisions. He he forced the issue when he didn't need to. Who knows if Brady Quinn continues to fall. Um, so he trades up to get Brady Quinn, but doesn't trade up to get Aaron Rodgers when he's falling. The you know the year before, um, you know it's just it's one of those things where you look back and very little about his decision making makes sense, except for he swung for the fences in very poor ways and hit on one pick. Um, he had two number three overall picks. One was Braylon Edwards. It was okay, and he hit on Joe Thomas. Everything else from there, you, you can just see when it was happening. So it's not, hey, we're in 2019, we're looking back a decade, and now we know these were poor choices. When it was happening, logically you could say this doesn't make sense. Hey, guys, Greg Peterson here with the Baseball Betting Podcast. As we know, the MLB season is back in our lives. It's going to be a 60-game sprint unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And I'm going to be giving you picks every single day, seven days a week with Major League Baseball. We're also going to be keeping up with the KBO as well. If you like baseball and you like being able to make some money, subscribe to the Baseball Betting Podcast with Greg Peterson on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. What about free agency? What did he do there? Any good pickups there, or was it pretty rough, kind of the same way that it was with the draft? It was honestly pretty rare. Um, so he made those trades, um, but again, this this part really just off the top of my head, I don't even remember free agency being a part of the process for him, um, mostly because he was brought in as that draft guy. Uh, and so everything was really focused on he's going to build through the draft or he's going to make these really smart trades. Um, and so really free agency um, never really even is a, is a piece to his puzzle. Um, when I look back again a decade or so ago, um, it's really not even an important piece of the puzzle. It really was all about the draft and it was all about these trades that he made. Um, and obviously it was all about his personality. 
did he have any overriding philosophy in terms of the way he built out a team? In other words, if you listen to Joe Douglas, what he'll say is he believes strongly in getting the quarterback and then building through the trenches, the offensive line, the defensive line, and that's his formula. Now, obviously, he wants to fill all the positions, but that's what he thinks is the key to building a successful team. Did Savage seem to have any kind of coherent vision, or did it feel like he was just picking players that he seemed to like and he'd fit them in somewhere? Yeah, it really did feel like he was... I mean, his one thing, it seemed like, is he wanted people who looked the part in a lot of ways. He was okay with multiple balls of play with the belief that coaches should be able to take this pure raw talent and make it better. Uh, But besides that, it really fitting together didn't seem to be an important piece to his puzzle. Um, It didn't seem like he really, you know, had this really clear idea of, of how he wanted to build the team besides adding talent. And really when he thought of talent, it looked like he was looking for uh, players who looked the part uh, workout warriors, um, guys who made, who were kind of wow kind of guys um, in a lot of ways. And again, it's why the Joe Thomas pick stands out, not just because it was the only good one. Joe Thomas didn't measure grade, didn't, you know, didn't have a lot of the things that fit kind of all the rest of the things um, that, that uh, Phil Savage wanted to do uh, in his drafting. So um, it'll be interesting now that he's been, you know, really out of the league pretty much since he left the Browns. You know, the Eagles had him in for as a consult for a year, basically. And then he did the Senior Bowl for a long time. But since he left the Browns, he really hasn't been involved um, in anything since 2008 that really involves the league. It'll be interesting to see if he's maybe learned a little bit more, uh, maybe understood a little bit that he connected with the Eagles for a little while under Howie Roseman. Uh, that could be helpful um, because there's a lot that he needed to learn. Um, but it's interesting that he was so selective or didn't get selected, and we don't know for sure, uh, between his Browns time and really now entering back into the league. I want to come back to that because first I want to get into what we mentioned before, which is the fact that he got a contract extension. Now, Jared, I know the Browns traditionally haven't exactly been known for making the wisest decisions all the time, but based on what you've described, it seems kind of unfathomable to me that anybody could get a contract extension based on that track record. What exactly happened here? What most people believe is that Phil Savage was given the benefit of the doubt and they were really excited about Joe Thomas. And at some levels, one of the things that has been interesting about the Browns, no matter who the owner is, so this is actually under uh, the learners uh, before um, the Haslam's took over, is that there's always this balancing act that they're trying to not look like they have constant turnover, um, all that kind of stuff. And then they finally had a winning season. So that year in 2007, they went 10 and six. They had this miracle season by Derek Anderson um, that really kind of put them over the edge. Jamal Lewis, you know, was somehow on Cleveland at that time. Um, and so they had this kind of miracle one off season, which it was a lot to do with who they were playing um, injuries, those kind of things that really just allowed them to believe enough that, uh, Savage had figured it out, that Romeo Cornell had got this thing kind of figured out, you know, all of those kind of things. And so, um, you know, he six and 10, four and 12, and then they have this blip of a 10 and six season. 
and then they returned to four and twelve. And so um, it really was this thing. Oh, maybe he does have it finally figured out after this third season. Maybe this actually makes sense. Um, maybe these players are kind of turning the page from his first draft. There was just this glimmer of again. You win 10, 10 games in Cleveland. You know, the last time before that was nineteen ninety four. Before that was 98, or 88, I'm sorry. So you win 10 games, and all of a sudden you're a hero. We saw that last season. Seven wins, and all of a sudden, Freddie Kitchens is the greatest thing since sliced bread, and fans can't get enough of him. It's just the reality when you lose this much that that 10-win season, they couldn't let it happen. Um, even though there were um, there were actually offers, people wanted Derek Anderson some people thought uh, Romeo Cornell and Derek Anderson could be a package deal uh, to Houston, I believe, at the time. Um, they just couldn't move on because they won 10 games. So something we're doing must be right. Unfortunately, that was very wrong. Sounds a little bit like Mike McCagnon and Ryan Fitzpatrick, but I don't want to open up any old wounds, so let's stick on the topic of the Browns. And unfortunately, I'm going to open up some old wounds for you, not for the Jets fan base here, when I mention the following word, email. Explain what I'm talking about, please. So, Phil Savage, as the general manager of a professional football team, thought it would be a great idea to have an email back and forth with not I mean the the end thing is that with a specific fan, but he chose to engage fans through email. And one of them, when he was particularly upset, led to him cursing at the fan via email. They all they said it boiled over or they got it through it because they both apologized, blah 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 blah. But the reality is, is that the general manager of a professional football team thought it was a great idea to email back and forth with a fan and uh, curse at the fan, um, which then got um, sent on to Deadspin and all that goes with this. The NFL didn't do anything about it uh, because they apologized and went from there. Um, but Savage was upset that the, the fan said he was the worst GM in the NFL. So 40 minutes later, he sent an email with some expletives in it. But it wasn't the only thing during that time. He also had an issue, um, a dispute with Kellen Winslow, tried to suspend him, tried to uh, cover up the staff infection that was going on inside of the facility, um, and then had to unsuspend him. I mean, just a whole bunch of, I mean, just inability to deal with stress, inability to deal with tumultuous times, in a way that shows someone who is level-headed. Um, and so if you're going to be kind of the face and the leader of a team, you can't be responding to an email to a, from a, to a fan uh, almost in any way, but especially with uh, cursing at him and all kinds of anger and frustration. And then obviously you can't be trying to cover up that there's a staph infection inside of uh, the Browns facility. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. I should note that Phil Savage has a fully operational Twitter account, so he may want to do himself a favor and start muting some words and phrases if he doesn't want to get himself into some trouble again, especially with the New York media ready, willing, and able to pounce all over him if he does do something like that again. So now we get to the end of his tenure, Jared, and this comes at the end of the 2008 season. And it's kind of ironic because there's a little bit of a Jets tie-in here, and I'm going to let you talk about that. But 
they just signed him to a three-year extension, and now all of a sudden they're letting him go. Seems like things went real wrong real fast. What's the deal here? And it really was just a combination of all of those things that that we just talked about. So pull drafting, a terrible season. Romeo Cornell is out. Derek Anderson is not looking like he is going to be, you know, that quarterback of the future, uh, diamond in a rough that they, they thought. And so what they really thought was going to happen is they thought, and let me tell you, there's jokes in Cleveland. Every time there's actually, it doesn't matter. It can be a Cavs coach, could be the Ohio State Buckeyes coach, Indians. It doesn't matter. There's always jokes about Bill Cower looking for homes in Strongsville, which is a suburb of Cleveland, because this one of the many times that the Browns were really interested in bringing in Bill Cower, or if that didn't work out, they wanted to bring in Scott Pioli, uh, who at the time was with the New England Patriots, to run things. And so Savage, Cornell uh, are, are, are out the door. 4-12 and 12 just wasn't okay. Uh, that 10-win season, they saw it finally as kind of the aberration that it, you knew it was going to be, um, and they wanted to kind of turn the page. They thought they could get this ba- big-name kind of person, and unfortunately, they found the man genius who had just been fired <laughs> by the New York Jets for all of his issues in New York and thought that he would be the right guy to make a difference in Cleveland. I will say this in Eric Mangini's defense, and I've said it many times. He actually was great when it came to player personnel with the Jets. He helped build what would become one of the most successful runs that the Jets have had in ages, going to the AFC Championship game twice in a row with Rex Ryan, and the core players on that team were selected largely because Mangini was at the helm there. It was known that Mike Tannenbaum was more or less the business guy, and Mangini was the football guy, but I guess it didn't work out so well for him with the Browns. He ended up having a situation where it took him a long time to get another job, and the same thing happened with Phil Savage, which you alluded to before, Jared. I'm going to get into exactly how far he fell and how long it took him to get another steady gig in the league, but it took a long time, and before we get into the specifics of it, it sounds like there was a lot here behind the scenes with the Browns that scared teams off because somebody like him with the type of connections that he would have had from his days with the Ravens and friends in the league you would have assumed he'd had, something went real wrong here that caused him to not get a look for a really long time. How deep was the wound? You know, I think that it was a it was a combination of two things. There was a deep wound of how he handled things and and personality conflicts and all that stuff. And then there's a part of him where he signed an extension through 2012, so he's getting paid to not do anything. And so there's very few NFL executives, coaches, those kind of people who are getting paid and are willing to just kind of sit on the sidelines. So um, a lot of the reports were he assumed that he would get uh, another GM-type job, uh, that he should be in line for those, that everyone would see that it was Cleveland, it wasn't him. Um, but instead, what everyone saw was this guy didn't seem that interested in coming in as an assistant GM or, you know, player personnel, whatever the roles could be. He seemed to think highly of himself, seemed to almost gloss over his time as a, as the Browns general manager and really focus on what he did in Baltimore, even though he wasn't the guy making the decisions. And so from the NFL's point of view, this isn't the type of guy that we feel 
is ready, leadership, personnel, has learned any lessons, those kind of things. And so uh, he was able to sit out, get paid, not really do a whole lot of stuff, which doesn't really fit the kind of fiery competitive nature we know of at the NFL level. That's what I was going to say, because a guy like Savage, you would assume somebody who had such control issues would be wanting to get right back at it. And instead, he had an advisory role briefly, as you mentioned, with Philly. And that wasn't for a year plus. Then he was out entirely and he was running the Senior Bowl from 2012 to 2018. So he didn't really have another full-time gig in the NFL for about a decade. Do you think it's possible that at this point he's had enough time to sit back and reflect and realize the error of his ways? And maybe now, since he's not going to be the number one guy anymore and he's working with somebody he's familiar with, with Joe Douglas, at perhaps in the capacity that he's going to be asked to function, he'll be better off this time and that the lessons that he learned from his failures with the Browns will pay dividends for the Jets and they'll get the guy that everybody thought so highly of in Baltimore instead of the colossal failure from the Cleveland years? I think it's really possible. You know, when you talk about the Senior Bowl, Savage did a great job of kind of elevating the Senior Bowl um, with his connections and just honestly with a lot of his personality, he became more open in the media, friendly, those kind of things. So I think there's a lot of hope that not only was he humbled, but he learned, he matured. Um, again, I'm not totally on his age at this point in time, but they matured. What he did at the Senior Bowl, people really loved going down there, both teams, media, everybody. So I think there's a lot to be said about that. The one thing I would have a concern about is at the Senior Bowl, he was in charge. It was his team, you know, it was his everything. It was his show. Um, so he really, he did get to lead again to be in charge. And then he went to Arizona. I think he saw maybe his way either back into the NFL or a way of kind of showing the NFL that he has it all together, uh, thought that the alliance was going to work out. Obviously that folded. And now I think the concern has got to be is, yes, he has respect for Joe Douglas, but Adam Gase has a unique personality, unique quirks. Uh, rubs people the wrong way a little bit. Phil Savage has some similarities. You have to wonder, and I'm not totally sure if, if the Jets are have kind of put out there whether Savage is number two, number three, number four, whatever his kind of number is. You have to wonder if some of that, I should be in charge, this should be my show. Uh, yeah, I know Joe Douglas, but he should be reporting to me like it's been in the past. If some of that kind of stuff just starts to naturally kind of happen, because now he's not calling the shots. And besides his little consulting role with the Eagles, he's called the shots or not worked since 2005. And now all of a sudden, the alliance folds, so everything gets pulled out from underneath of him. And now he's in this position as a number two, three, four, whatever that role, whatever he feels like that role number really is. I'm just not sure personality-wise which personality is real, the guy leading the Senior Bowl that everybody loved or the Phil Savage that started rubbing people the wrong way about a month into his tenure in Cleveland all the way through emailing a fan and trying to hide staff infection and suspending a player who had staff infection from the facility. I guess, as the legendary Iron Sheik would say, we have to hope that the Browns made Phil Savage feel humble, Bubba. 
<laughs> well played. <laughs> I think if Phil Savage is somebody that they lean on for some help with the college scouting, and if he's there to utilize his connections from his days with the Senior Bowl, then it'll probably be a good hire. But like you said, if they end up giving him the type of power or anything close to it that he had in Cleveland, based on his personality, could be asking for trouble. But then again, like you said, he's really seemed to turn over a new leaf the last few years. So if you're a Jets fan, you kind of have to hope that that new leaf is the new Phil Savage and not some sort of facade that is going to be peeled away as soon as he gets any kind of real power. But it's going to be an interesting thing to monitor. And Jared, I'm really glad that you came on to shed some light into the days that Phil Savage spent in Cleveland because now we have a much more full picture of what the Jets are getting in their front office. Thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. For anybody that doesn't know your work, why don't you go ahead and let them know where they can find you and what you've been working on. Absolutely. So you can find all of my work. We're a part of uh, 24-7 Sports. It's the Orange and Brown Report. Just go to theobr.com. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's at Jared K. Mueller. Um, and, you know, the last piece I put out, so we have subscriber pieces as well as some of the free pieces. But for me, it's always about trying to find that little bit of information that is a little bit different. So I actually just went back through for our subscribers and looked at the last 20 years Super Bowl participants. So the last 40 people that are teams that participated in the Super Bowl. And what did their three seasons prior look like? Uh, because a lot of Browns fans have the hope that the Browns could make it. Uh, so just kind of look at data and what do, what, do, what do teams who participate in the Super Bowl, what have their years look like in the three years prior uh, to try to get an idea? So for me, it's whether it's film breakdown, data analysis, those kind of things. Really interested in the things that aren't talked about all the time. Um, and so really interested in talking about the Cleveland Browns being good, which isn't talked about a lot. And at some point, hopefully we'll talk about the New York Jets being good as well. Oh, fingers crossed for that one. And I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about, Jared, as we get ready for the Jets-Browns showdown that's coming up week two of the NFL season on Monday Night Football. Can't wait for it already, and perhaps we'll have some podcasts to generate between the two of us on the Browns and Jets side of the ledger as that approaches in a couple of months. It's not that far away. Isn't that amazing? Thank goodness. I mean, we've got to get through this rainy <laughs> summer in Ohio, but we're ready to go. You know, we got we got a lot of talent. We're not used to looking forward to the talent on the field. Uh, we, we're used to the draft being everything and ev- anything and everything for our team. So we're excited to actually talk about the play on the field and winning games. It'll be weird. For the first time in a long time, the Jets and Browns have a lot to look forward to, especially at the quarterback position. So if you want to learn everything you can about the Browns leading up to that Week 2 matchup, or if you just want to read about our old friend Odell Beckham Jr., and of course, guys like Baker Mayfield, you can go ahead and do that at Orange and Brown Report. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and TurnOnTheJets.com.